Well, I'm looking forward to getting back into John 14 with you this morning. Um, before we do that, I'm going to take you quickly to Philippians 4. But before we do that, I'd like to pray with you that God would center our thoughts. Would you pray with me? Father, our, our hearts are easily distracted and with, with cell phones in our hands and iPads and ambulances and activities in the morning trying to get ready to come and activities waiting for us yet today. It's so easy to lose our focus. So God, I ask that you're going to center us right now. And that will happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. We want to be fully present in the moment and allow your Spirit to teach us. I know there's things that you want to say, and so I'm asking that you help us to shut aside and shut out all those things that could distract, but rather to focus on you and your Word. So God, I'm going to ask specifically in the power of your Holy Spirit that you invade this auditorium in such a way that we are fully present in the moment. Speak to us, Father. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. I find in Philippians 4 an amazing statement by Paul, who himself was a person of fairly anxious behavior, uh, full of anxiety, prior to meeting Christ. And I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute, but Paul wrote something remarkable about this new understanding he had about his position in Christ. Look with me up on the screen at Philippians 4.11. He's writing to the church in Philippi. So we have the book to the Philippian church, the Philippians, and this is what he said to them. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is in an incredible place of peace in the midst of really trying conditions. Now let me help frame this for you. Paul has been shipwrecked, floating on the open ocean on driftwood. He's been beat severely, left outside a city for dead because of the things that he taught about Jesus and the people that hated him so much. It it appears that actually he was comatose. Everybody left him for dead. There was no heaving of the chest. He was thrown into a Roman prison. And don't think of an American prison when you think of a Roman prison. A Roman prison is a hole in the ground, literally, And they put a board over the top of the hole so just little streams of sunlight filter down through into the very dank, smelly, dark, musty environment. That's the guy who said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Where in the world does that kind of peace come from? How can you say that? How do you keep that type of focus Now, the younger Paul, when he was known as Saul, had anxiety issues. I mean, you look at the younger Saul before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and you'd say, Paul, take a pill. I mean, goodness, the guy is hyper off the charts. He's looking to persecute and prosecute the church, overseeing the killing of people and the throwing into prison. And so he's just full of anxiety. And now we find him as an older man saying, hey, I've learned the secret. 
I know what it is. That's what we're going to look at this morning is what is that secret to having that anxiety go away? How does the peace of God rest upon you? So when Jesus says in chapter 14, as we've seen in the very beginning, and I promise you we're going to finish chapter 14 today, but in in the very beginning of chapter 14 in verse 1, we hear Jesus say, let not your heart be troubled. Relax. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he gives the reasons why you're not to be troubled. Now, I know this was in your notes last week, but I put it in your notes again this week, and you're going to see the bullet points up on the screen. But I want to remind you of that foundation of comfort that you have. Jesus has been building a case over these last few weeks as we've looked at this. First of all, he said, I'm going to the Father's house. When I leave, I'm going back to where I belong. And while I'm there, I'm going to be personally making provisions for you to come there and join me. And when the necessary preparations are made, I'm coming back. And I'm going to bring you to myself. And in the meantime, as we learned last week, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be your comforter, your encourager. He's not going to do it for you. He's not going to take the workload. But He's going to encourage you along the way to be bold so you get out there and get it done. And then today we see Him saying in verse 27, My peace is going to rest on you. My own personal peace. He's going to give it to us. So this biblical peace, this peace of God that we want to rest on us, we discover, according to the Bible, does not depend on circumstances. Because Paul said, I've learned whatever the circumstances are, I'm going to be at peace. And Jesus is the one that's saying, I'm going to give you that peace. So right away, we understand that a Christian lives above the circumstances, even when you feel like your world is collapsing around you. So how do you define peace? If I was to hand you an Aladdin's lamp this morning and you could rub the belly of the lamp and the genie would pop out and you were given the power to grant world peace, what would that look like? You had that magic wand in your hand. How would you define it? Let me show you how the Encyclopedia Britannica defines the word peace. Here's the world's definition of peace. A state of harmony characterized by the lack of violent conflict, absence of hostility, the establishment of equality, and a working political order that serves the true interest of all. Uh, First of all, have you ever seen a working political order? Okay. I know we have a great political system here in the United States, and while at times it appears to be broken and not working too well, thank God you live in the United States of America, that we have what we do have that God has gifted us with. But when you look at this definition, you're going to say, I, at least I observe, I'd say, that's a really negative view. That's a, a glass is half empty view. Uh, somebody's a pessimist who wrote that. Their definition of peace is the absence of, of violent conflict, the, the absence of war and strife and quarrels. That's the world's definition of peace. So we're going to say that's not a wrong definition, but it's an incomplete definition. This understanding of peace is incomplete because there's something missing. It's more than just the absence of conflict. Rather, it's the presence of something else. And I want you to see what that presence is. Let's go to John 14 and verse 27. Only have a few verses before us this morning. John 14, 27 is where we left off at last week. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up there. 
Peace I leave with you is what Jesus left us with. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And we know Jesus was a Jew, right? Jesus is raised in Israel. He's born to Jewish parents. He's raised in a Jewish community. So Jesus spoke Jewish words. And commonly, a Jew talking to a Jew would use Hebrew or Aramaic. And in, in Hebrew, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he would have said, my shalom, I give to you. Well, this is a Jewish word, the word shalom. Perhaps you've heard it used in television or in movies. What is shalom? It, it's more than just the word peace. Look at the biblical definition. Customary Jewish greeting, also used as a farewell every time. Safe, well, happy, health, prosperity, peace, good health, rest, safety on your home. So when you see a Jewish man walk up to another Jewish man in a community setting in the, in the town or in the marketplace, and they'd say, shalom. This is what they're hoping for on that individual. Not just an absence of conflict or the missing of violent hostility in your life but rather that God's peace, His rest, would be on you. So God's definition of peace is way more than the world's definition. Much more than just the absence of conflict. So we're going to look at what is the peace of God because to have peace with God, we understand it's the bedrock on which all other peace is established. At some point in the 1970s, somebody got out of backhoe and decided to start digging a foundation for where this building sits today. They dug all the way down to the, what we would call the bedrock, the firm footing of the earth, below the frost line, a place where they could pour a wide foundation. And once that foundation was in place with the re-rod established, they began building the stem wall and the basement walls rose up out of the ground. But they had to have a firm foundation first. What is your foundation for peace? What is it rooted and grounded in? We're told in Scripture that it needs to be rooted in something very specific. Look with me up on the screen. I'm going to take you again to another writing by Paul, Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3.14 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Did you notice what he said? What my foundation is in? It's rooted and grounded in love. The love where? The love of Christ. So that gave Paul that peace of mind. No matter what the circumstances are, Paul had peace. And Jesus wants to give that same peace that he gave to Paul to you. So as I'm working through this text this week, I'm really wrestling through this concept of what does it mean when a believer in Jesus understands they've got the peace of God on their life and they need to act accordingly. So this is the first statement I came up with for myself as I'm just wrestling through this. I want you to see it so you understand my wrestlings here. The degree of peace in my life or in your life, the degree of peace in your life has to do with your standing before God. 
The degree of peace in your life has to do with your standing before God. Now, as I wrote that down, I thought, Mark, that's an incomplete statement. That's not comprehensive enough. So this is the second part, and I want you to see the mental wrestlings that's going on here. Here's the next stage. The degree of peace in my life has to do with my understanding of my standing before God. It's mental. It's what I comprehend. That's why Paul said that you being rooted and grounded in the knowledge of God would comprehend that you mentally would understand your standing before God. Here's a very basic way of making that understandable for you. Um, When Lori and I lived in Arizona for a couple years, just south of where we lived in central Arizona, south of Phoenix, was uh, this area, a national park called the Picacho State Park, or Picacho National Park. And it's just a little mountain. I mean, you're driving through Arizona, you see these little bumps that they call mountains sticking up out of the, out of the desert floor. And this particular one, the Picacho National Park, was a place where the very last battle of the Civil War was fought in the United States. Here's what's remarkable about it. You go there and you see these bronze statues, guys with their weapons out. The the north and the south met there in a battle on this little dump of a hill. Why they fought for it, I don't know. Here's the worst part. The war had ended the week before. They didn't get notice for seven days. And guys died on that hill, just a little bump, for nothing See, they didn't understand their standing. They'd been given standing orders. Stand down. The war is over. But they had no mental knowledge of it. And so there was no peace. There was conflict. They had no understanding of their standing. So the degree of peace in your life has to do with your understanding of your standing before God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the war has been fought and won for you on behalf of you through Jesus Christ. He's the one that won the war for you. You've been giving your orders. Now, we're still in a battle. We've been engaged in this battle with Satan, and we've been given certain abilities to engage in that. But overall, the big battle has been won. So here's the problem. The converse side of the, the peace issue is this. The converse side is, is that you have no, if you have no peace with God, there cannot be any real peace in your life. I know that sounds like a simplistic statement, but that goes back to the world's definition because the premise of the world's definition of peace is wrong. Not only incomplete, but inaccurate. It's an inadequate definition because the world is incapable of finding peace because they don't understand what they're looking for. They don't have a sense of why. So the world system's peace is something you hope for and you work for. Now, here's, here's a statement that will help you put that together in your mind. This sentence, Mideast peace talks, okay? Have you ever heard a bigger, bigger oxymoron in your life? Mideast peace talks. You would expect something to come out of those peace talks, right? Every time they sit down to the table and negotiate, and that's truly what they're doing because they're hoping for peace and working for peace what takes place. Well, if, you, if you'll give up this land, we'll withdraw some tanks from this area. And, and matter of fact, we'll give you some more missiles if you'll close down those missiles. And how about some cash incentives? What are they looking to do? They're looking to work for peace. So the world is basing its hope for peace on resources, right? 
But the Christian bases his peace on source. What is the source? Jesus Christ. So as believers, we base our peace on the source. The world is basing theirs on resources, hoping that we can work and achieve it, trade and negotiate. Where does that come from? I had that question asked for me about a, a year ago with some individuals who occasionally attend here. They're, they're not believers in Jesus, uh, and they're very open about saying that, um, but they're curious. And so they're both professors at MSU, and um, this particular couple, husband and wife, um, one particular time invited me to come over to their home. And they said, Mark, what we'd like to do is engage in a dialogue with some of our, our other uh, associates from the university, people that we are at MSU with, and have you talk to us about what is the origins of evil in the world. Because there is so much strife and unrest. We want to have a better understanding. What is your position about where all this unrest comes from. So in, in a living room setting with 12 people who are all professors at MSU, they wanted to engage in this dialogue. Well, frankly, church, a fifth grader or a first grader from one of our Sunday school classes downstairs could have gone over and engaged in that conversation. Because the truth is, it came from when Satan entered the garden and he caused man to fall. And the fall of man brought man at a position where he's at enmity with God. And so humanity stands opposed to God because of the fall of man and the willful disobedience. So that, that's why the world's confused. They can't understand where is all this coming from? You know that God actually call, calls our world an adulterous generation because those who stand opposed to him are going against his will? Look with me up on the screen at James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an enemy of God. That's the last thing that I want. As a matter of fact, the good news is you don't have to be an enemy of God. You can be at eternal peace with God through Jesus because God chose Jesus to be that instrument by which you could be brought to peace with him. That's what he told us in Colossians 1.20. Jesus was used for this purpose, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's a promise. You want to be at peace with God, you look at the cross. That's what you have to point people towards. So that's why Jesus could say in verse 27, my peace I give to you. It belongs to me, and I'm the one who can give it out. So to the Christian, peace is a gift from God. It's something that he gifts to you. So you want to receive that gift for sure. For the world, they enjoy peace when there's an absence of trouble. Christians enjoy peace in spite of trouble. We know the peace of God. Why? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So here's a fundamental characteristic of the kingdom of God. Peace. God said it's a fundamental characteristic of who he is. So let me remind you of this from the Old Testament. It comes from number 626, which is one of many examples. God saying this, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom. Psalms 29.11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with shalom. Now, that's a characteristic of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, which was realized in the New Testament. 
It came to be because in the Old Testament, it was a hope. It was something that God was promising. And it came to be through Jesus Christ. We see this in Philippians 4.17. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word will is a very important word. It's a promise from God that if you have Jesus in your life, the peace that's going to cover you goes beyond your wildest imagination. It surpasses all understanding so that even when you've been thrown outside a city and you've been beat or you're floating on driftwood in the ocean or you're in a Roman prison, you could say, I know it's crazy, but I've understood the secret. It's my standing before God, my understanding of who I am in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth. Now, the world is powerless to give peace to itself, let alone to you personally. If they could do it, they would. An example of that would be in Syria in the last few weeks. We watched the dictator in Syria ramping up his attacks against his own people. And the world is powerless to know what to do. There's a desire to go in and bring military might and take out another dictator, but probably replace him with another dictator. The world is at a complete loss to know what to do in the midst of this situation. Do you know that it is a detestable thing in God's sight for individuals to try and work out peace treaties when they leave him out of the mix? We're told that in the Bible, that God finds this a detestable thing, and he denounces those who deceive the world by giving false hope when there is no hope in anything other than him. Let me show this up on the screen. This comes from Jeremiah 6, and it comes from a period of time in which some individuals coming around the nation of Israel were telling them, it's okay, God's not mad at you. Well, actually, God was pretty mad at them. And they kept saying there's going to be peace, but there really wasn't any. Look with me, Jeremiah 6.13. They dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, where there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. He's talking about people who are trying to negotiate peace, but leaving him out of the mix. So the world's promising peace. We wave flags of peace. We even build high-rise buildings in New York City, and we call it the United Nations. And we send troops out with little blue helmets on and calling peace-keeping troops, but they can't deliver. Just to put this issue to rest, in history, historians tell us that in the last 3,500 years, there have been actually 300 years without global conflict going on. That's a pretty imbalanced scale. 3,500 years of turmoil, 300 years when there's no conflict. It's been estimated that in the last 5,500 years, there have been more than 8,000 peace treaties, every one of them broken, resulting in 14,000 wars with 4 billion casualties. That's what's going on in the world system. No wonder Jesus says, I'm not going to give you peace as the world gives you peace because there's always been fantasies of global peace and the world continues to work at it, but they're unsuccessful in reaching it. So Jesus says, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Now, what was the world like when Jesus was walking around in the first century? Who was the peacekeeper? Rome, the Pax Romana, it was known as. 
Pax Romana meant the peace of Rome. How did they institute the peace of Rome? The sword, the shield, and the boot. And every place Rome went, they destabilized a nation, put their own power in control, restabilized the nation, and that was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was brought through the sword. So when Jesus says, not as the world gives you, I'm not bringing you the Pax Romana. Because in the Jewish mindset, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and free Israel from Rome. So what they were thinking is they need a bigger sword and a bigger shield and a bigger boot and a great leader. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be that one. I'm not going to give you peace as the world brings you peace. I'm going to bring you the peace of God. That comes from Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which transcends all understanding. And here's the truth, church. God has to give it to you. It is not something you can get on your own. It is the peace of God given to you through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So that means a bigger checkbook won't solve the situation of no peace in your life. Economic instability or greater recreational experiences. You can't buy a four-wheeler fast enough, guys, to take away all the anxiety. It may temporarily put it on hold, but how big does your checkbook have to get? How many four-wheelers do you have to own? How many fishing rods will fill that void? Only God's Word can authoritatively point to the relationship that can produce lasting peace because He's the God of peace. That's how we get it. So Jesus could say, it's my peace, and it's that same peace that kept him calm. So let's put it in context. We spent three weeks working on this. We're learning that Jesus is in the upper room at the Last Supper. We know that he's within 12 hours of his own crucifixion. That means the Romans are about to rip out his beard, to strip his flesh from his body, to run nails through his hands, to mock him and humiliate him. And in the midst of that, he's saying, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be fearful. You believe in God, believe also in me. I want that kind of peace, that kind of peace that he's talking about. That kind of peace transcends everything else. How do I get that? Well, I put it in your notes this morning, and it's just five bullet points that I wanted you to see. It sums up what we've been talking about these last couple weeks, because here's what we're told. We're told that we are to be doers of the Word, not hearers only, according to the book of James. Don't just listen with your ears, but actually do something about it. So what does it look like to be a doer? What can I do? Now, here's what God's Word said. So hear it. Hear what God's Word said with your ears, and I want to show it to you. Here's what God says. First of all, it says to be filled and to walk in the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.16. What does that mean? Because, Mark, that's really easy to say, but what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? That word walk is a habitual activity in your life. It means day after day after day. Your practice is the same, day in and day out. You're constantly reminding yourself, I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm not going to be distracted by the things of the flesh, the things that will pull me away from God. That's a habitual lifestyle, the word walk. Second, to consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. That means literally, let sin have no rule in your life. Meaning, don't be looking at the things you shouldn't be looking at. 
Don't let your mind be wandering to the places it shouldn't be wandering. Understand that your sin is dead to God. He sees you as a clean thing. So let sin have no rule in your life whatsoever. And as a result of that, you can present yourself to God as someone who's completely alive. You've been taken back from the dead. No longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but alive to Christ. That's what Scripture says. So what am I talking about here? You've been sanctified. And many Christians forget that. When Jesus sees you, He sees you holy. So that requires you to come before a holy God and say, Father, I know you separate my sin as far as the east is from the west, but I messed up again. And I know that I am sanctified, but I'm just asking for forgiveness. So I'm coming before you because you're a holy God. I'm presenting myself as someone who's been rescued from the dead, and I'm alive in Christ. And the next one is you have a responsibility, number four, to study the Scriptures. This is going to bring peace to your life to study God's Word. It's what Michael was talking about earlier, spending time in God's Word. And number five, Paul understood this one. Running in such a way as not without aim. Many of us know what it is to discipline our bodies, but we forget what it is to discipline our mind. And so Paul was speaking of both issues here in 1 Corinthians 9. When he said, I've done this, I discipline my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not even be disqualified. You do those five kind of things, and I guarantee you, the peace of God will begin to invade your life. John MacArthur summed up a a great quote because of the propensity we have as human beings to forget about this issue of having the peace with God. And so his quote goes like this, to live in anguish over the past Anxiety concerning the present or apprehension about the future is to fail to appropriate that peace. The peace that God gave you. When you live with that anxiety of the past, you're concerned about tomorrow or you're concerned about today is to forget what God has done for you. So there's one more thing I want to add to that because it comes from the Old Testament and God said something very specific about this work of peace in your life that it's tied in with righteous behavior. Let me show you it up on the screen. It comes from Isaiah 32, 17. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. You want some quietness and confidence in your life? You want the peace? God's linked it with righteous living, righteous behavior in your life. So here's a reminder for you. God has forgiven your past. He has provided for your present. And he guarantees your future. That's why he said to the disciples, I'm I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you and bring you there. So God has promised your future. He's taken care of your present. He's forgiven your past. He leaves you legitimately nothing to worry about. He's taken care of it all. If you apply those principles to your life every day at the start, in the middle, and at the end, you will know the peace of God. So Jesus did a, 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 a I forget the word, he, he did it twice, okay? Double something. It, when he said, my peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you, this is the double peace structure that he did. Peace I leave with you is the result of his atonement. I died on the cross, so my peace 
I leave with you. And then as a result of that, my peace I give to you, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So one is for your conscience, for God's forgiveness in your life. The other is for your heart, to know the peace of God on your life. Here's where we begin to wrap it up. Verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I'm convinced at this very moment that the disciples understand the dream is over. Everything that they've been hoping for, that Jesus is going to bring about the peace of Israel and throw Rome out, they're beginning to take him literally at his word. They understand he's going to die. And so Jesus' responds, is, hey, you guys should be rejoicing about this. If you understood where I'm going, you would rejoice if you really loved me. Now remember, God, Jesus, has left the indescribable glory of heaven. And he's come to earth, taken on the nature of man. And now he's about to be restored to the Father's right hand, to go back to glory, the fullness of glory that he had known before creation. So we see him in the garden in just a couple weeks literally on his knees before the Father saying, God, restore me. Bring me back to the glory that I knew before the world was, before creation. Look with me on the screen, John 17, 1. Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What's he doing? He's returning to the sphere where he came from, where he belongs. But he makes this statement in verse 28 that really confuses a lot of people when he says the Father is greater than I. And so when the Jehovah's Witness showed up at Michael's door yesterday and wanted to talk about Jesus, they came at it from this perspective of verse 28 when Jesus said, for the Father is greater than I because they constantly take this verse out of context. The Mormons do it. The Jehovah's Witness do it. The Unitarians do it in which they say that Jesus is a created being based on verse 28. And they take it completely out of context. The Jehovah's Witness argue that Jesus is a lesser God and that God the Father is a greater God. That is not what's going on here. What you're looking at is Jesus' statement of obedience to the Father, that He willingly left the glories of heaven and came to earth and took on humanity. So he's eternally co-equal with God, but in role and function as the Son, he submitted himself to the Father's will at the incarnation. Now let me take you to Scripture and show you how you can know this. Next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door knocking, like they did with Michael, take them to Philippians 2.5. Let me show you this on the screen. Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he's not speaking of himself in his essential eternal being. He's speaking of himself in his humanness here on planet earth. The one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God willingly chose to take the servant form and come to earth. So in this sense, in his assumption of human nature, 
God is greater than him, God the Father, and he's inferior to the Father. Why? Because at this very moment in time, God the Father is still on the throne. God the Father is in the Shekinah glory. He's surrounded with the brilliance of heaven. Angels by the millions are falling at his feet, praising him in glory. And so naturally, Jesus the Son would say, the Father is greater than I. But if you understood where I'm going back to, you would have been happy. If you really love me, you understand what I'm returning to, and you'd be glad. That's what's really going on there. I'm returning to the sphere where I belong. So here's the last part, verse 30. This is how it ends. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. It really struck me this week when I'm working through this and I see Jesus noticing this, this statement is made, the ruler of the world is coming. Jesus saw Satan approaching. And you really let that resonate with you. Jesus saw Satan's approach. He's marshalling his army. He's bringing his forces into place. So Jesus is in the upper room, and Satan is on the other side of the wall. He's already entered into Judas. We looked at that two weeks ago. They went out into the night. Satan entered Judas. There's only two people in the entire Bible that Satan possessed. One is the Antichrist in the last days, and the other one is Judas. Everyone else has been demon-possessed. But this is Satan possession. And Jesus now says, I see him coming. The ruler of the world is approaching. I hear his footsteps. And he has an agenda. But he has nothing in me. What is that statement? It's huge that he would say the ruler of the world is coming and that he has nothing in me. He's taking us back to the garden again. Sin and death entered at the garden. Man became opposed to God, and so Satan then takes control over man, over humanity. But Jesus is sinless, and Satan cannot claim him. So this statement, he has nothing in me, is a Hebrew idiom. It's actually a, a legal contextual statement, meaning this, he has no claim on me. How could he? How could Satan bring a charge against Jesus? He who knew no sin... He was sinless, so Satan had no claim on him, but he's got claim on everyone who stands opposed to God. So Satan can't bring a charge against him. So we understand that from the very time that Jesus entered planet Earth as a baby, Satan was carrying out events to try and kill Jesus. From the time that he sent Herod, working through Herod and the soldiers, trying to execute the baby Jesus, and instead they killed all those babies in Bethlehem, right on through to every time you see someone picking up stones to throw them at Jesus, that's Satan working through those individuals trying to kill him, and now it culminates in the garden. So far from being Satan's victim, Jesus is Satan's conqueror, and Jesus is going to meet him head on. 1 John 3.8 reminds us, the Son of God appeared for this very purpose to destroy the works of the devil. If you get a chance later today, go to Genesis 3.15 and you'll see God in a conversation with Adam and Eve and Satan. And God judges Satan first. And he says, because of this evil thing that you did, forever you will crawl on your belly on the dust of the earth 
And then he speaks in terms that are prophetic in which he says, you will bruise his heel, meaning the viper will strike at the Son of God, but he will crush your head. That's Genesis 3.15, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. I see Satan approaching, and I'm going back to the garden to meet him. Get up, let's go. Your God is being bold in that statement. All of this conflict, all of the forces of dark and light engaged in a battle and where Satan started in the Garden of Eden ends in the Garden of Gethsemane when he thinks he's striking out as the serpent to bite at God's Son. But Jesus is about to crush him because he knows that we win. Satan begins the assault. Jesus hears the pounding of the footsteps and he tells the disciples, let's go guys, it's time to meet him. So you don't see your Jesus backing down. He's not running to a broom closet to hide. I see him, I hear him coming, let's go to the garden. I hope you remember these things this week and I'm gonna ask God that he'll seal them in your heart because there's three big rocks we took on there. The peace of God on your life, that Jesus is co-equal with God and that he's engaged in this battle and you are as well with Satan constantly trying to thwart God's plans. Let's go to prayer and ask God to seal this in our heart. Father, I believe you specifically wanted to speak to an individual here in this auditorium today and I don't know who it is, but you do. You wanted them to hear that you can bring peace to their life in a way they've never known before. Others, Father, you wanted to be reminded that we win. The victory is yours. And we are more than conquerors according to what Scripture promises. Not because of what we did, but because of what you did. So, Father, we come before you as your servants asking that you would seal these truths in our heart this week. Even this afternoon, Father, when some of us will engage in things that we might consider turmoil, but you're willing to say to us, don't be troubled. Let my peace rest on you. Father, I ask that you would seal these promises in the hearts of each individual in this auditorium, no matter what they encounter this week, that you've got it all in control. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.